Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Andrew Booth from Blind Limited. As you'll quickly hear, Blind's work as a London-based leading creative studio designing user interfaces for movies, whether it's James Bond or the Dark Knight trilogy, or especially Star Wars, is just simply incredible. What exactly makes Star Wars feel like Star Wars? This is Talking Bay 94, episode 85, Andrew Booth, Blind Limited. When we're dealing with, with the work that you do, I think what's important first before we even talk about Star Wars, we talk about Bond or we talk about whatever, is to first go back to what inspired you to even do this in the first place. What made you kind of set you on this path of very specific type of design? It was twofold and was down to circumstance and also sort of the love for film. So, you know, I've been doing screen graphics for 18 years. Mm-hmm. You know, I love film, I love design, and it sort of felt like a natural fit. So, you know, I come from an art and design background. So I was always like, I always liked making things. And also as well, I thought it was a sort of an expressive way of doing something that was innovative and thought provoking. And equally growing up as a child, I always loved gadgets and spy movies. I like the imaginative way that those kind of films took you somewhere else. So when you see, see a film, it takes you to another place. And I think as a young child in England in the 70s, early you know, 80s, where life was a bit, mm-hmm. the, the nature of that era was we had three day weeks, you know, it, it, it was sort of quite tough time. So I think what was quite interesting about going to the cinema was it, it was a form of escapism um, that you wouldn't necessarily have. And I think that's why I became quite interested in, in working on in films. So for me, there was two things really, and, it, and I can kind of put it down to uh, the year 1977. So finally on my seventh birthday, I was allowed to go and see a James Bond film mm-hmm. uh, at the cinema, which was The Spy Love Me. And I think for me, there was that moment when you see the lotus and it hits the water and it suddenly turns into a submarine. I was like, wow, this is what I want to do. I want to work on these kind of films. So that was, you know, a key moment. And actually another key moment, which I know you don't want to talk about Star Wars specifically now, was a new, you know, Star Wars A New Hope. And what was interesting about that was that whole film is about hope. And as a young boy, it was like, yes, it was set in a galaxy far, far away, but... Part of its charm was that the audience kind of knew or felt what it was like. And for me, it was a fairy tale set in space. And there were so many things that were so imaginative in it. It just sort of caught my imagination um, as a seven-year-old child. And actually, even like the glass panels of Yavin, I always believed that the guys with the light pens were actually moving those vectors. But that was my imagination. They didn't move. But I think there was that sort of impressionistic idea that you can take something visual and it becomes something bigger in your own sort of mind's eye. Those sort of two films were the reason why I specifically wanted to work in the film industry. Films represented a place where you could let your imagination run wild. So that's sort of why, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And then the journey was... A little trickier because it's very difficult to get into the film industry. Also as well, for me, there was sort of a prescient moment when I kind of figured that screen graphics 
were going to be our future or computer graphics. I was working at a brand, uh, a production company making corporate and brand films mm -hmm. where we were using nonlinear editing and we were also using After Effects, which was, you know, as an animation package. And I felt, oh, maybe this is the future in terms of technology. So it was, it was about being in the right place at the right time. And I'd already seen, you know, we'd seen sort of core moments of graphic language used in 2001, Alien and, and A New Hope. But there certainly seems more of a move towards it in the late 90s, like GoldenEye, Tomorrow Never right. Dies. And I sort of realized that computers could be used for animation. Interestingly as well, the reason for moving across to film was, you know, 2009-11 happened and I was busy with this production company making um, corporate brand films. And all of a sudden it just stopped. That work dried up, you know, the animation side of it dried up, the, the video making dried up. And I had to think of another way of making a living. So I then spent the next 18 months expanding the portfolio into doing fictional UI graphics in the hope that I would actually get a film. And I just got lucky. So that's sort of, that was sort of the, the way I came to it. Mm -hmm. It was, as with most things in life, you know, it's down to a little bit of luck, but also sort of persistence, I think. Yeah, so I think also you were sort of saying before we jump into Star Wars, you wanted to sort of hear about some of the early blind projects. Well, yeah, because like Star Wars is Star Wars. And when you when you think about the movies, like you're saying, past the early 2000s that have these kind of instantly recognizable design work within yeah. within the technology, it's it's the movies that Blind worked on. So, of course, the Dark Knight trilogy yeah. and just like all of the Wayne Tech stuff that Nolan was putting together. Yeah, it was very seamless. What was that like working with him and putting that all together? Yeah, I mean, that was an interesting journey because, so just rewinding slightly before we get onto the Nolan. So going back to how I got lucky when I had this portfolio, I, I tried for about 18 months to get on Die mm -hmm. Another Day, which was in production at the moment, and actually almost ended up breaking into Pinewood to visit the visual effects supervisor oh. at the time. And she saw the work as she saw the test, and, you know, it was that kind of classic thing. I hadn't done anything on a film. So it was that kind of classic sort of, well, you know, you're not, you're not testing. It's like chicken and egg situation. But I did have these test shots. I think the visual effects of the supervisor was quite surprised that I got through the gates. <laughs> and anyway, she said, look, we've already got a bunch of guys doing it. And I thought that was the end of that. And I went home and me being this sort of passionate individual wrote this letter on beautiful conqueror, uh, paper, which, you know, was beautifully printed out. And I folded up saying, look, no problem. Really great to meet you. If you ever um, need anything in the future, then, you know, please do reach right. out to me. And two weeks later, I got a phone call. And that was our, that was the first sort of post-graphics job that uh, we had done uh, or, or I was involved with. Um, and that was just through sheer perseverance. So Mara Bryan sort of gave me my first break in, in 2002, and that relationship continues uh -huh. today. Um, having just worked with Mara recently on specific sequences for the um, new James Bond film, No Time to Die. So that's, that's quite a nice story. It was just, you know, for, for people, where if they're passionate about something and really want something, it is hard work, it is perseverance, but don't sort of give up. And then it was two years before I got my next film. So, you know, the next film we worked on right. was Hellboy. Uh, so there was, it was like, yeah, I finally <laughs> done it on Dying Day. And then all of a sudden I sat on my sofa thinking, well, what am I going to do now? 
but you know, it was it was my first big break. So so some of the early, so the Dark Knight trilogy, yeah, it was instantly cool stuff, intimidate, um, the Batcave, the Batmobile. How you know how how did the work evolve across those three modes, or how do we get looped? In, how do we get looped into that project? Well. Again, it was sheer hard work and per- perseverance. Everyone thought I was crazy that I wanted to work on this Batman film because obviously the previous Batman film was all neon yeah. and it kind of went to that slightly sort of kitsch 60s vibe, you know, you know, coming off the back of the Tim Burton era. But I had seen Nolan's short film, I had seen Memento, and I had seen Insomnia. And... I thought he was a really interesting filmmaker. So for me, the reasons I persevered again to try and get on the first Batman Begins was because I knew this this filmmaker obviously had a voice, and he was very and 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 what he was doing in terms of the films that he was making was incredibly interesting. So we had to pitch. It was very nerve wracking, and I formed a really good working relationship with Nathan. We had great fun in the interior of the of the Batmobile. It was very collaborative. He said, Andrew, I need you to come down to the white model. And the white model is like a, a polystyrene interior. He said, bring loads of dials, cut out screens, buttons. Mm-hmm. We're just going to go in. And you know, we sat in this polystyrene model, sort of sticking things here, there, and everywhere, which became the bases within the Batmobile. So what was quite interesting there was, it was, again, luck, but also as well, you know, it was about almost trying to work out what the aesthetic is. And I think what was quite interesting in terms of the overall design on, the, on those on the Dark Knight trilogy is it's based in realism. And originally all the tactical displays in um, the Batmobile were way too futuristic and they just didn't they just didn't fit within the sort of slightly military vehicle. And I you know research is very important in our in our line of business. Do your research, do your homework, see what's out there, read. I was quite intrigued by DOS, which I know is quite industrial, but we ran it on one of the displays and it looked great because you got this sense of movement mm-hmm. and that all of a sudden became the stripped back basis of the look. What I'm really pleased about is I still look at the work that we did on the Dark Knight trilogy and it feels like very similar to Ridley Scott's Alien where there's a slight timeless quality to it. The graphics are almost timeless in terms of the quality they have them, which, you know, I'm sort of super proud of. And I still look at them with intense amount of pride. And I think that's, that's what was sort of born out of that. So that was a great experience on Batman Begins. And of course, you know, we, we came back for the Dark Knight. And I think a lot of that was because we had established a very kind of clear look and style of graphics, which sort of suited the production. Again, you don't want to repeat yourself. So even though the UI in Batman Begins is quite industrial, the interface designs in the Bat Bunker are slightly more advanced. You know, we were doing Mm -hmm. some pretty cool stuff in terms of moving the technology forward. I mean, who would have thought that you could create an interface that could reconstruct a bullet to reveal a fingerprint, Uh, which in itself was a very challenging piece of animation. Mm -hmm. Chris Nolan wants to do everything on set. It has to be done practically. And interestingly, you know, so if you take an object in 3D, if you want to separate it, you put an explosion in it, you blow it up, and then you reverse the footage. But that wasn't what Chris had in mind. And we had to 
take the bullet fragments, of which there was a considerable amount, uh -huh. and we had to hand animate them back into position to reveal the fingerprint uh, uh, on the bullet, um, which took an insurmountable amount of time. But actually, <laughs> <clears throat> for that one key moment, you know, that, that's, that, that moment is there forever. And I think that, so that for me, you know, so that just shows you the level of detail and, and sort of thought and process that go, goes into these things of which the, the audience, you know, sees it for a few brief moments. Right. But yeah, that, that, that was kind of fun. So that, that's, so for me, you know, I think also as well, what was great about that was quite interesting in terms of even bringing it forward to Star Wars was the idea that we could come on board for a franchise and help provide you know consistency like you have the same production designer and i think that's something right. that we sort of pride ourselves on i mean that's a great jumping off point for then with the craig universe leading off for james bond having yeah. to recreate kind of his entire gadgetry and everything and it makes it very seamless in terms of you know making it modern but at the still time feeling like it's a james bond movie yes well, I think the challenges that we constantly have is that we have smartphones. If you're doing a spy film, it's got to be souped up. You know, you've got, you've got to, the user interfaces, you've got to rift on those user interfaces that we use and know every day. So you've almost got to soup it up. John Barry used to talk about the music on the Bond films. And the reason why you get this sort of high-pitched trumpet was to elevate the drama. And I think that's the same with the technology. You've got to make it feel like it's part of the modern world, but actually it's one step into the future. And I think that's very important for a Bond film. So yes, it's rooted in modern world technology, but as much as possible, we're trying to think one step ahead. You know, we're always trying to think about how we best communicate the script beats. Um, and sometimes our work does call for us to be, you know, do a bit of forward thinking in terms of futuristic technology. So. Right. The idea that obfuscated code is hiding a map of London, how you graphically represent that on set is a bit of a head scratcher. So, you know, I think that's, that, that's where you've got to be. It's always about seeing what the narrative beats are of the story. How do you make it exciting for the audience to enjoy that and also almost want them to, they almost want to have the voice recorder or the fingerprint scanner right. on, on their part. Also as well, I think the difference as well with Bond films is that whereas you had visual consistency in The Dark Knight across the three films, I think different directors come in and they're always looking to do something different. Sure. So, you know, even the way that characters are introduced, um, you know, whether anyone will notice, notice it, you know, if you look at Skyfall as an example, before MI6 gets blown up, there's sort of old school gray desktop interfaces. And then obviously as they go underground, there's a sort of subtle shift to what Q is using as you see him setting up shop. So there's the, the advancement of the story through the interface design, but also making a clear differentiation between what might be old and what is new. And I think we felt quite strong about which, you know, Sam Mendes sort of bought into was that we were introducing a character that was beloved to the audiences but in a slightly different way. We tried to give him screen graphics UI that was keeping in keeping with his personality. And that was quite a leap when you think about Q before Ben Wishall took it over. You know, it was all about the gadgets. And I think that was kind of interesting as well for us was, or for me was all of a sudden, the gadget that was a physical prop like a car with an ejector seat or guns 
suddenly the gadgets were being represented by user interface design right. and how you could use that to solve certain narrative problems that were thrown at the characters. So, you know, that was a really nice sort of full circle for me in terms of like loving the gadgets as a kid and then being able to sort of be involved in a new wave of gadgets that are actually more graphical based in the, you know, in the 21st century. We'll have to do a follow-up interview after No Time to Die finally comes out. And we, yeah, no, <laughs> we can talk about that. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, <laughs> well, I think one of the things I would like to sort of say as well, that interesting, the computer interface design um, on Bonds, they constantly have to be new. That you, you advance the way the screen graphics are presented on these films every time. So, you know, on Bond, you have a present snapshot of what the interface looks like now or in not too distant future. And you can expand in depth and you can differentiate between the real world and the film fiction. But I think also with these things, it has to propel the story. You know, it's about how you, when you read the script, how the computer graphics used, you know, it's like we are an aid in terms of furthering the exposition of the film by conveying key information to the audience. I think the script is everything. It doesn't matter if it's a Batman film or a Bond film or a, or a Star Wars, any film, you know, the script is everything. It's the foundation. It's, it's, I'm sure you hear this from your other people that you interview. That's the department's blueprint for us to work out what our key disciplines are and provide the sort of various solutions. The challenges are all written on the page and it's all about advancing the story. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. No, I mean, because I think it's important to talk a little bit about these foundational truths of what makes good UI design for movies before we then jump into, you know, working then on all these new Star Wars movies where UI and what we view as what makes something feel Star Wars is so intrinsically connected. You know, jumping into your first part of that world, which is The Force Awakens, I always call it like one of the riskiest movies of all time, but it was pulled off in such an incredible way. And it was that balance of both going retro, but still being futuristic and pushing Star Wars into a new generation. Yeah that made it so successful. And I think part of that is is your design. When you when you see your designs on screen or on a set or in a corner, you automatically associate it with Star Wars. But what was it like for you? I'm sure that's a huge challenge having to go all the way back to, you know, 77. You think about the tractor beam, you think about Death Star plans, you think about all these things that make Star Wars feel tangible to us. Then you have to kind of go in 30, 40 years later and kind of make it fresh again. Oh my, yes. Uh <laughs> it was a uh, it was a very fine line to walk and i think each disney era sw film has its own sensibilities dependent on that particular production and it was a very interesting uh, and involved process you know right. a lot of it was following jj's guidance you know he wanted to create in camera graphics he wanted to celebrate the aesthetics of the original trilogy, but he also wanted them updated for the, uh, the modern audience. And I think striking the right balance was constantly the, the, the challenge there. It, it was quite interesting because on Force Awakens, it was back to school, deep learning. Uh, Rick Carter was like, he told us to go back in time and study and really study the original uh, Star Wars trilogy. But it wasn't just about the screen graphics. It was about the universal language of the unique franchise. So there are lots of stylistic, artistic cues that are peppered 
within those first, the, the, the original trilogy. What's quite interesting, you know, I, I've seen The New Hope more times than I cared to, to recount. I mean, it was on HBO, I was in America uh-huh. when I was about 11 years old, and it was on every day. And I watched it every day for six weeks. When, you go, when we went back on it, it was like, yeah, you might have seen the film, but you need to go and look at it again. And actually, when you go back and look at it with the eyes on actually trying to absorb what that universe is, it becomes a very different thing. You know, we, we very much, uh, during pre-production, you know, we researched the original designs closely. We collaborated with Rick Carter and D- Darren Guilford to get the look and feel right. But also as well, Force Awakens was like going back to college. We were sort of having to study a vernacular of graphic design that was created in the 70s. You know, yes, we were doing a retro science fiction film using interfaces, but they had to look modern, but also had to look Star Wars. And keeping with the DNA of the original trilogy. It was a tough brief. And there was always a constant yeah. measurement of, does that feel too much in the future? Or is that too, or is that too old school? So it was a very fine line. Um, it was incredibly, uh, incredibly challenging and rewarding, actually. And I think also as well, you know, there, we, we had to sort of create kind of guidelines as well, because generally speaking, it's how do you identify with color and shape between the rebels and the first order? So, you know, we kept it really simple. So again, this was very much part of working with the art department. You know, earth colors are used for the resistance. So you've got your oranges, your blues, and your greens. And then the first order, everything is red, black, white. (laughs) So there was sort of a a really good divide there in terms of that. You know, the Imperials were very slick, very sharp, very clean. Their design was sort of systematic and structured, but not necessarily sort of symmetrical. And then with the Rebels, things shouldn't look designed. So there's slightly broken, jittery, off-kilter, things don't line up. And I think, you know, if you look at the Empire or the First Order, the Stormtroopers, you know, every one of those things is exactly the same. So the key difference that we learned on The Force Awakens was that there's a general notion that the Rebels are very unstructured and eclectic, but the Imperials are very organized. So, you know, we sort of, and within that, we could kind of create the framework that, you know, differentiated between both the good guys and the bad guys, but also gave us some grounding in terms of moving forward. Uh, interestingly, right. if you look at Rogue One, if you look at New Hope, a lot of the graphics are just black and white. So, um, again, how do you keep those things very simple and still differentiate the rebels from the Imperials? So again, there, it was much more about mix and matching and cobbling things together. So things were quite fuzzy for the rebels, but obviously for uh, the empire, it was quite sharp. So, you know, it's a tricky line. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that delineation is so important. And you mentioned Rogue One, but I'd be curious, because Rogue One, you have to remain so closely tied to A New Hope, especially with your design, but then in terms of timeline, Rogue One and Solo are so close, you know, on the global chronology of of what a Star Wars movie is, that I'd be curious of the differences working on Rogue One and Solo and trying to at least attempt a different style between those two, even even though you're now dealing with something that's technically set in like 1977. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you're right. You know, 
Rogue One and Solo, there is, there is the time proximity. And yes, there certainly is a historic time frame in reference to the graphic aesthetic of both these movies. But, but we also thought in kind of real world historic terms. So for us, the graphics in Rogue One obviously are embedded in the aesthetic of the 1970s. However, when we began to work on Solo, we went further back in time and looked at actual computer art from the 1950s and the, and the 60s. Oh, wow. So, you know, it, we used our, our historic timeline here to kind of create delineation, and that, that worked out really well. I mean, interestingly, the thing about Rogue One is it directly, as you say, relates to A New Hope. So. For us, there was an element of recreating elements or creating computer graphics that would fit within this time period, but we weren't just copying them. It was about evoking that technology um, that they had back then. And sometimes the images would flicker, we would degrade the images so they weren't pixel perfect. It was always a direct response to what had gone before. And something that we always used to talk about in our sort of creative team meetings was that if you imagine in Yavin, we never looked over here. So <laughs> the stuff, you know, what you're seeing is what was there back in 1976, but George didn't photograph it. You know, I think that was quite a nice principle in terms of how we, A, evolved the graphics and also kind of breathed new life in, into them, specifically for, for Rogue One. Is there a difference in your design, like even let's talk Last Jedi specifically, but is there a difference in your design when you're designing for something in camera versus something that might be overlaid later on? If it has to live on the set and be interacted with actors or with extras or with, you know, the actual cinematography, is there a difference with how you are designing on the back end? One of the things that Lucasfilm was really keen on was to capture everything in camera as much as that was physically possible. It was sort of like putting on an old pair of slippers for us because obviously <laughs> we'd had a lot of experience with it. And I was kind of, for me, I was kind of relieved because Skyfall, 85% of the graphics in that film were played back and captured by Roger Deakins on set. You know, uh -huh. and then we were getting all the Marvel films where it was holographic and everything was done in post. And I was, I was sort of like, are we actually going to see that return to the sort of the actual physicality of actually putting this stuff? And I think that's one of the things that I, I think where Lucasfilm was so incredibly clever, like with the creatures, with the costumes, with the set, was let's do it in camera. Um, but that's not really answering your question, your question. But I think, you know, in terms of Star Wars, you know, yes, of course, the approach is different on set because... What you're doing there is you're working out the graphic sequence from the script. You've got to anticipate the beats, and then it's all about the timing. So as an example, on Solo, we had graphic puppeteers controlling L337's neural core as Lando holds her heart in the cockpit of the, of the Millennium Falcon. You know, and this sequence was triggered based on rehearsing the scene with Ron and Donald Glover by going through the dialogue to get a feeling of the screen. You know, Doing this reel was an amazing experience for the actors as they have something tangible to base their performance on. So, you know, that's a really good case in point where you're, you're, you're doing something and, you know, it's, it's kind of instantly relatable in a, as a physical thing within the set. So 
that sort of gives you a good example of an on-set experience. But obviously, yes, there are some times where you just have to use post. And again, I'll, I'll cite Solo as an example. When you're working on a graphic screen graphic in post, it fits into a locked edit or sequence. Yes, you're following the actions of the actor and matching the pace of the story, and you're still conveying information in a direct way, so the narrative has to be spot on. Um, so there are some advantages on Solo. As an example, on Solo, you can see how Post works well, and it's easily relatable to the Millennium Falcon targeting screen. So that action is defined as a Post effect because the TIE fighters, we can't see them yet. We don't know which direction they're coming from outside the window. And here, you know, our job on those specific graphics it is to match the targeting graphics to the wonderful work of Rob Reno and the team at ILM. So, you know, so we're being led by the CG environment outside. So I think that's, 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 kind, of in, that's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, for, for post elements, you know how long the graphic has got to last. Right. And you know when it's going to begin and when it's going to end. The discipline is still the same, but half the process is left out because essentially the animation is created on the computer and then it's handed over to ILM for compositing. You know, as an example, on Rogue One, we did 100 graphics, but only one post shot. Um, you know, wow. managed to get everything else in camera. Wow. So, but that, that's very specific to, to Star Wars. Also, right. you know, I think in post, you're not necessarily tied down to what is physically possible on set. So there is a greater flexibility. You can create more complex sequences, especially if... So when we were working on Mission Impossible Fallout, there was... The conveyance of information in the, mis mis uh, in the mission briefing was hugely complex, and there was no way that that would have we would that would have been the complexity of that sequence would not have been achievable on set. So right. that is a really good example of how the action of the graphics is integrated from an editorial perspective to tell that to tell the story. I think it's interesting to me, you know, because all of these Disney Star Wars movies have their own unique feel. And obviously, most of them had a different director. And so I'd be curious, you know, if we go all the way to the most recent, if we go all the way to Rise of Skywalker, reworking with J.J. Abrams again, I'd be curious of what you've learned through this process of what makes something feel Star Wars. But then at the same time, like what different directors had different preferences in terms of what they felt Star Wars was like as well. If that makes sense. I was saying that out loud. <laughs> it, uh... The Star Wars feeling. What is the Star Wars feeling? Uh, <laughs> exactly. Oh, my Lord. That is a question that we... You hear that question echoed time and time again. What, what does Star Wars feel like? You know, the mantra on, on set of Force Awakens was it has to be the same but, it, but different uh, in terms of Force Awakens. And interesting, when we showed JJ our range of work before we started on Rise of Skywalker... He really honed in, interestingly, right from the get-go, was he really liked the aesthetic of Rogue One's computer oh, wow. graphics. Um, what's quite interesting, that even though we worked with JJ on Force Awakens and followed the direction of that particular production, he felt more synergy with the Rogue One, Rogue One stuff because it had much more, it was much more simplistic, right. bold language. I think that was quite telling. Also, as well, sort of wrapping up sort of the Rise of Skywalker, one of the things that we were told at the beginning was that. The resistance and the first, you know, the first order are on their knees. Um, so everything is a bit broken. So the, the universe is, is is fragmented. And one of the things that we did with the graphics 
was represent that fragmentation by making them feel broken. It shows that the universe and things were not working sort of well. So that was an interesting kind of full circle. Star Wars definitely has a distinctive visual language. And yes, each film has its own sensibility. Uh, You know, as an example for Solo, we thought, oh, it's just like Rogue One. And it's set in a similar period between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. But actually the Rogue One aesthetic didn't feel right. So there our approach, you know, as I sort of said to you, was kind of real world decades and not splitting the difference between the trilogy and the prequel. You know, we talked about Rogue One being made in 1976. So we thought Solo was made in the 60s. You know, so we're definitely taking inspiration from that and the Apollo space program that felt much more like the graphic language in terms of what makes Star Wars feel like Star Wars. Again, it's going back to the specificity of each production. Now on Solo, we spent a lot of time making the graphics look used, out of focus, broken. They, they felt like they don't exist on an iPhone or a laptop. You know, we didn't procedurally draw them on a computer screen. We sort of went back to how A New Hope, um, Dan O'Bannon, who literally was creating cell animation frames, time to target. You know, we hand drew our graphics, we scanned them in. It sort of gives you that sort of handmade aesthetic, you know. So that that worked really well. It, so, so the Star Wars feeling is one as is one of every film is a journey, and it's that journey of discovery that makes it feel like a Star Wars. Right. So, you know, I can remember when we were doing initial designs on Force Awakens, it's like, how do we embellish what has gone before when it's such a specific aesthetic? You know, how do we add to the universe, not you know, subtract? There's no set ingredient. Um, it's about the script, the director, the art directors, the production design, the visual effects, about our whole team. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a feeling, it becomes a feeling. And it's that feeling you've got to tap into to create any kind of art or screen graphic or costume. But I think at its core, it's about being respectful to what has gone before and being really knowledgeable. But you're not just looking to replicate what has happened in the past, but you use that DNA and I think you take that DNA and you create new and exciting things that live within that universe. I mean, I'd be curious. You've worked on five Star Wars movies now. If there's anything that stands out to you as your favorite design. Like, I think so many of these go so quickly or, or, or just sometimes are just in the background. I'd be curious if, if any of them stick out to you now as like, oh, that's the one I'm the most proud of. That's the one I've, I've been the most excited to see on screen. <laughs> well, um, that's such a tough question because... You know, I'm proud of all of them. And, you know, like children, I have six. You you really can't have a favorite. So, so for me, the thing that I'm most proud about is that all these beautiful things um, that we're working on in the franchise are created by real craftspeople, by technicians, by designers, by artists. And I think for me, that's the thing I'm most proud of is that in this very modern world where we have so many things that are procedural, to be able to take our discipline and kind of work within sort of a dream factory and play in this amazing galaxy is the thing I'm most proud of because I think it's such an enriching experience. And I think also as well, the Star Wars universe is very unique and it's, it's, it's a wonderful place to go and, and visit and create this, this stuff, which is like nothing else mm-hmm. I've ever worked on. So I think for me, you know, I'm, I'm super proud of, collectively being involved in such a, a stunning array of films and collaborating with a, with a, a fabulous teams 
they're all there to put the best thing they possibly can on screen. You know, Rogue One, yes, the design constraints were tighter. Everything on the film had to look similar to the source material as possible, but Gareth's encouragement every step of the way was how little can we put on the screen to tell the mm -hmm. story? I think one of the great examples there is that, you know, as the Battle of Scarif rages below, there's that fantastic familiar Dot Sphere Death Star right. animation, which um, was recreated by the great John uh -huh. Null. Uh, which transmits into Leia's ship on the interface. And, you know, that perfectly segues into A New Hope. And I think for me, that was that minimal interface design, which, you know, normally is only in the peripherals, became the star right. of the shot for one. I love it. You know, and even on Solo, like Ron Howard wanted the graphics to work in hand speeder, but the speeder was driving around at 80 miles an hour. So originally we thought they're just going to be ambient loops. We don't have access to the car. Um, but what's interesting in terms of future tech, we actually harness the power of the app that drives the smartphone's compass <laughs> and create the graphics oh, wow. into driving the actual graphics. So you've got an old looking mm -hmm. graphic, but it's driven by the technology oh, of the that. smartphone. I love that so much. So, you know, we programmed it so if you press the button, you could change the map right. you're looking at. And when you're actually driving, it moves. Um, as the car turns. So there's a bit of interactivity and dynamism. And I think that's quite interesting in terms of using future tech is that we're taking future tech and we're applying it to a franchise that is not even set in right. this universe. One of the other favorites was The Last Jedi, which um, was really involved for us in terms of the opening scene. You've got Poe Dameron on a call to Hux. The reason why he's calling him is to buy time. He's charging the engines on his X-Wing so he can stage a surprise attack on the first dreadnought. You know, you've got his resistance buddies planet side trying to get them off. So it's a plan that you begin to understand because, you know, the camera cuts to the display while Poe's goading pups. You can see the, the status of the boosters. So for me, there's a, there's a perfect piece of storytelling there is you've got exposition, drama, and tension all wrapped up in a progress mm -hmm. bar. And it's a practical effect. And I think the tension is experienced by the audience, the actor and the character alike. You know, in fact, every single display there in the in Poe's cockpit kind of pulls triple duty. You've got the one depicting the tower that Poe is attacking. You've got the middle one that shows uh, the status bar of the X-Wing engines. And the bottom one, which is wonky, is visualizing the ship's damaged targeting system, which BB-8 is spending so much time right. trying to fix. So, I think what's nice about that is how the graphics help support the story. And I think Ryan, he gave us a lot of creative freedom and he was very generous with his time. And, you know, he wanted us to build on our previous experience in terms of Force Awakens and Rogue One. To sort of sum it up, you know, the most compelling aspect of the current Star Wars world is the dedication its director right. brings. And matching their vision and enthusiasm makes each job feel new. And I think for us, the craft of learning from each one of the previous productions and honing us these skills offer a greater experience uh, each time. I love it. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for all these incredible, incredible things that you've done to make Star Wars feel like Star Wars and, and to inspire us and to keep us going. So, uh, Andrew, I appreciate I appreciate coming on. <laughs> I thank you for uh, having us. And as I say, I'm 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 so thrilled that our tiny little part of a very huge universe is of interest to to yourself and thanks very much for uh, spending the time with you.
Thank you again to Mr. Booth, as well as Helen Baker from Blind Limited for the time, the patience, and the coordination it took to come on the show. It really was so worth it. This Friday at 7.30 p.m. Central, I will be live on Scener.com, S-C-E-N-E-R, breaking down episode one of The Mandalorian season two. This will be every Friday night this season, with me and special guests pausing, rewinding, and analyzing every shot. And thanks to Scener's technology, you'll be able to watch alongside us. Head to Scener.com slash TalkVA94 to set a reminder for this Friday, and I'll see you there.